Hello and welcome to the BarCast. I'm your host, Nick Barr. I don't know what episode this is. It might be 14 or so. Um, I left my computer at the office today uh, intentionally because it was a late night and I didn't plan on doing any work. Um, but then I thought I wanted to record something. Um, so we're, we're doing uh, a voice memo on the phone and we'll see um, whether the quality is better or worse. Um, additionally, there's a conversation maybe next door or upstairs, so there might be a little bit of background noise. And on top of all that, it's pretty late. It's like 11 o'clock, so I'm, I'm slowing down. Uh, and so this will be sort of a, uh, maybe a more intimate podcast. Um, the other day, uh, a friend of mine shared out her sort of timeline uh, summary of the last five years, and she had um, different swim lanes for different things like full-time job and contract jobs and side projects and uh, life events, etc. And uh, yeah, I admired her for doing it and for taking the time to do it, and I thought maybe I should do the same. Um, but I was struck by how um, small that life looks when you do that, you know, um, when you lay out sort of the, the milestones and key events, um, how kind of insignificant, um, it all feels. And I felt the same way recently. I finished up another notebook and when I finish up a notebook, what I like to do is go back to the beginning of the notebook and the table of contents and just jot down a couple of words describing uh, anything significant in the passage. So if there if there's a passage where I'm keeping a diary of a trip, I'll just write trip to Mexico in the table of contents and so on th- until I'm through the book. Uh, then I'll stick like a white sticker on it. Um, and then that's it. And I, I, I have about six or seven notebooks spanning probably the last eight years, and it's just alarming to look at those notebooks stacked up and say, yep, that's the last eight years. They're not thick notebooks at all. Uh, and in many cases, I was only writing on um, the right-hand side because I like to use an ink that that bleeds. You know, all that notebook and pen stuff is so corny and I hate to be a part of it, but I admit that like the right combination of notebook and pen does, it makes a difference. Um, I like the dot grids, uh, for, for writing and for sketching. Anyway, all that stuff relates to sort of this idea of output and output as a measure of life. A couple of years ago now, I conducted something called the year of Nick. I was unemployed and just pursued personal projects and maintained a website that was basically just a list of those projects. And uh, there's an appeal to that for sure. And many people have done the same thing of sort of working in public and here's all the stuff that I'm doing. But you find yourself, or at least I found myself uh, in a weird sort of uh, internal dick swinging 
contest of, well, how, how much can I produce? How much output can I generate? These, these sorts of endeavors of like, you know, my year of personal projects lend themselves to uh, quantity, not quality. And you can imagine someone just doing one thing for their entire life um, and having a much more productive um, life than is is the one that sort of uh, looks great on a website. Um, I bring all this up because I, I just wrapped up the diary of uh, Witold Gombrowicz. I, uh, he's a Polish guy. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I've turned the W's into V's and put accents in various places that I think are characteristic of Polish. Um, and this guy kept a diary for about like 16 years. Um, and that diary was serialized in uh, a Polish expat journal and then ultimately put together in one big old book. It's, it's pretty big. It's like 800 pages. And I was just thinking because like, I think it's, it's a lot, it's a lot for one person. Uh, it's a lot of like one person to absorb, I guess I would say. I don't know if I've ever gone through an experience of consuming a person's mind to the extent that I did with Gombrowicz. And it comes across even better if you, if you read parts of the diary, because this isn't really today I did X and tomorrow I'm going to do Y. It's really sort of him laying out his point of view, um, about literature, about politics, about culture. And so by the end of it, uh, you've really had sort of your, your dosage and maybe overdosage of Gombrowicz. I, um, I, so I, I finished it. Um, I guess it sort of ended with his death. I think he wrote up until his death. His life is super interesting. He was Polish. Like I said, he, uh, wrote a novel when he was pretty young, I think about 30, um, and became sort of a minor celebrity in the literary circles of Poland went on vacation to Buenos Aires on a big cruise ship in 1939. And when he got there, Germany invaded Poland. Uh, and so he said, maybe now's not a great time to come back. Um, stuck it out through the war, uh, had no money, became like a bank clerk. The war ended, um, but pretty quickly, um, you know, Poland segued into communism and, uh, uh, yeah, Gombrowicz basically decided to stick it out in South America where he stayed in obscurity until like super late, late sixties or mid sixties when he won a prize, um, given by the Ford foundation that allowed him to return to Europe where he stayed in Berlin and ultimately lived in France until his death. Um, anyway, it was a funny experience because I finished this book and, I try to remember when I finish a book to go to Goodreads uh, and and mark off the book. And when I mark off the book, I tend to give it some number of stars, one through five. Um, 
And I, I just, I laughed thinking about what Gombrovich would have said about the world we live in now where, uh, any old schmuck can go on a Yelp or go on a Goodreads and write their review, uh, you know, two stars. Um, I really didn't like this part, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so to illustrate sort of a bit of the Gombrovich take on criticism, I thought I would pick out a passage from the diary and read it. Um, and this is not his most vitriolic take on criticism. He He's um, pretty hardcore about it in various different places, but I think this is the most insightful passage about criticism in the whole diary. It's also sort of a standalone essay. Um, and so I'll read it here. It's three pages in the book, so maybe three minutes of reading. Let's see. Oh, and before I start, um, he uses a metaphor of rape, which, I don't know, maybe I'll either leave the essay as it is, or maybe we'll talk about it a little bit at the end, but I apologize if that's something that uh, makes anybody uncomfortable listening to this. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, here it is. Today, years later, when I'm a lot calmer, less at the mercy and the lack of mercy of judgments, I think about the basic assumptions of Ferdy Dirk regarding criticism, and I can endorse them without reservation. So Ferdy Dirk is his uh, first novel, for which he became kind of widely known in Poland. There are enough innocent works that enter life looking as if they did not know that they could be raped by a thousand idiotic assessments. Enough authors who pretend that this rape perpetrated on them with superficial judgments, any kind at all, is something that is not capable of affecting them and should not be noticed. A work, even if it is born of the purest contemplation, should be written in such a way as to assure the author an advantage in his game with people. A style that cannot defend itself before human judgment, that surrenders its creator to the ill will of any old imbecile, does not fulfill its most important assignment. Yet defense against these opinions is possible only when we manage a little humility and admit how important they really are to us, even if they do come from an idiot. That is why the defenselessness of art in the face of human judgment is the sad consequence of its pride. Ah, I'm higher than that. I take into account only the opinions of the wise. This fiction is absurd, and the truth, the difficult and tragic truth, is that the idiot's opinion is also significant. It also creates us, shapes us from inside out, and has far-reaching practical and vital consequences. Criticism, however, has yet another aspect. It can be seen from the author's side, but it can also be seen from the side of the public, and then it takes on even gaudier tones of scandal, mendacity, and deception. How do these things look? The public desires to be informed by the press about books that appear. This is the source of journalistic criticism, manned by people having contact with literature. Yet if these people really had something to do in the field of art, if they really were rooted in it, they certainly would not stop at these articles. So no, 
these are practically always second- and third-rate literary figures, persons who always maintain merely a loose, rather social relation with the world of the spirit, persons who are not on the level of the concerns that they write about. This, then, is the source of the greatest difficulty, which cannot be avoided, and from which arises the entire scandal that comprises criticism and its immortality. Hmm, check that. That comprises criticism and its immorality. <laughs> not, not immortality. The question is the following. How can an inferior man criticize a superior man? How can he assess his personality and arrive at the value of his work? How can this take place without becoming absurd? Never have the critics, at least the Polish ones, ever devoted even a single minute of time to this delicate matter. Mr. X, however, in judging a man of Norwood's class, for example, puts himself in a suicidal, impossible position because in order to judge Norvid, he must be superior to Norvid, but he is not. This basic falseness draws out an infinite chain of additional lies, and criticism becomes the living contradiction of all its loftiest aspirations. So they want to be judges of art? First they must attain it. They are in its antechamber, and they lack access to the spiritual states from which art derives. They know nothing of its intensity. So they want to be methodical, professional, objective, just, but they themselves are a triumph of dilettantism, expressing themselves on subjects that they are incapable of mastering. They are an example of the most unlawful usurpation. Guardians of morality? Morality is based on a hierarchy of values, and they themselves sneer at hierarchy. The very fact of their existence is in its essence immoral. There is nothing that they have exhibited, and they have no proof that they have a right to this role, except that the editor allows them to write. Giving themselves up to immoral work, which consists of articulating cheap, easy, hurried judgments without basis, they want to judge the morality of people who put their life into art. So they want to judge style, but they themselves are a parody of style, the personification of pretentiousness. They are bad stylists to the degree that they are not offended by the incurable dissonance of that accursed higher and lower. Even omitting the fact that they write quickly and sloppily, this is the dirt of the cheapest publicism. Teachers, educators, spiritual leaders? In reality, they taught the Polish reader this truth about literature, that it is something like a school essay, written in order that the teacher could give it a grade, that creativity is not a play of forces, which do not allow themselves to be completely controlled, not a burst of energy or the work of a spirit that is creating itself, but merely an annual literary production, along with inseparable reviews, contests, awards, and feuilletons. These are masters of trivialization, artists who transform a keen life into a boring pulp, where everything is more or less equally mediocre and unimportant. A surplus of parasites produces such fatal effects. To write about literature is easier than writing literature. That's the whole point. If I were in their place, therefore, I would reflect very deeply on how to elude this disgrace whose name is oversimplification. Their advantages are purely technical. Their voice resounds powerfully, not because it is powerful, but because they are allowed to speak through the megaphone of the press. What's the way out of this? Cast off in fury and pride all the artificial advantages that your situation assures you, because literary criticism is not the judging of one man by another, who gave you this right, but the meeting of two personalities on absolutely equal terms. Therefore, 
do not judge. Simply describe your actions. Never write about the author or the work, only about yourself in confrontation with the work or the author. You are allowed to write about yourself. In writing about yourself, however, write so that your person takes on weight, meaning, and life, so that it becomes your decisive argument. Do not write as a pseudoscientist, but as an artist. Criticism must be as tense and vibrant as that which it touches. Otherwise, it becomes gas escaping from a balloon, a sloppy butchering with a dull knife, decay, and anatomy, a grave. And if you don't feel like doing this, or cannot do this, leave it alone. So, that's um, uh, what I would say a five-star essay by Grimbovich. It's it's dense, and it's really a, a sort of a microcosm of so much of what interests him and what he comes back to. Um, I, I think some of his critics call him a fascist. It's It must have been so interesting growing up when Gombrovich did and living between, um, you know, spanning that gap from Hitler to the communists, right? Because you have Hitler, the fascist, who makes it very clear that there's a superman and an underman, that there's, you know, the Aryan race and the the Jews, among others, who are inferior, um... And then you have communism, which is a leveling, um, we are all equals. Um, and, and Gombrowicz is so clearly um, uh, an artistic fascist, right? So he, a fascist of art, um, he believes in superiority, he believes in inferiority, he believes in the smart, he believes in the stupid. And in, in other passages, he almost, well, no, I mean, he, he straight out sort of says this is, these are the facts. These are sort of the the consequences of society and evolution. That um, you know, look, someone's got to lay the bricks. Um, but of course, I think he's less interested in in society and sociology than he is in in art. Um, and I think the the one if if there's one really compelling point here, other than sort of. So I I don't really care about the broad strokes of egalitarianism versus sort of elitism, um, but what I think he's he's onto something is in that early part when he talks about uh, artists owning up to the fact that they care about criticism, and the superior in air quotes or really meaning it the superior owning up to how much it's shaped by the inferior, not just as uh, you know another set of coin or, or in contrast to inferior, but that the opinions of the stupid really mattered to us. Um, and in fact, the worst thing we can do is, is pretend like they don't. And maybe it's in part because of all the things going on in 2016, but I feel like that's maybe more relevant than ever is, is sort of this conundrum of like, what do we do with idiots? Um, and you know, I think I think the realization that one can't just dismiss idiocy; um, one has to anticipate it. And as um, 
as the smarter, as, as someone who's smart and not dumb, it's kind of on you to craft a story or an argument or a piece of art that anticipates the dummy's objection um, and conquers it. That's what I love about the very beginning of this passage. Um, you know, a work, even if it's born of the purest contemplation, should be written in such a way as to assure the author an advantage in his game with people. Uh, and Gombrowicz is a master of this, uh, along with a few other artists. At some point, the, the writing becomes dense enough or nuanced enough or long enough that it really anticipates any objection, because any objection has already been made by the, by the artist, either explicitly or implicitly. And Gombrowicz is a master of that um, when he takes on sort of immaturity as his banner. Um, he is the immature artist, the incomplete artist, the young artist, the artist in rebellion. So anytime you say, well, this is clunky prose or this didn't quite flow, you have to ultimately give him the credit and say, well, maybe that's how he wanted it, right? Um, and he certainly does this in, in at points where it's, it's undeniable. Um, I love how actionable this passage is, right? So, you know, not only does he describe a, a problem and a crisis and in some some in some ways this crisis is is ancient and not that interesting which is like um, criticism is inferior to art so how can criticism evaluate art um, but uh, not only does he sort of capture this crisis eloquently he he comes up with a solution um, write about yourself Cast off in fury and pride all the artificial advantages that your situation assures you. Because literary criticism is not the judging of one man by another, but the meeting of two personalities on absolutely equal terms. Your art is your form, which is a little bit Gombrovichian and obscure, but um, you are your art. And so speak about yourself. Describe your reactions. Um... But this isn't like just relativism, right? So when I was an undergrad um, in, in the U.S. at University of Pennsylvania, I, I wrote a bunch of English papers and sort of the, the culture of that English department was write about your own reactions, um, which was very liberating because it's the, that's the easiest thing to write about and that's the only thing that I'm an authority about. And so when you're reading classic works, if you're going to be reading a Moby Dick or a Ulysses or whatever uh, – it's, it's intimidating for an undergrad to um, somehow engage with the scholars here, right? So I, I think Penn smartly uh, encouraged us to write uh, from our own perspectives. Um, the, the challenge there then, though, is sort of like, well, what are, what are we doing, right? Like, isn't this just a bunch of wasted ink? Um, why am I writing about my two cents on Joyce when I could go to the library and read um, uh, critics, you know, long spent sort of research in the area um, and then write a much more informed paper. Um, and I, I, I studied abroad in London for a semester and wrote a bunch of papers there. And they had that exactly that approach where, I mean, I remember one of my papers was on Chaucer and, uh, the professor let us know, like, you've got to, you've got to cite a minimum of 25 sources. So that was one of the things we were great against. Like, what does the bibliography look like? Who are the sources that you're citing? 
Uh, how effectively are you engaging with um, the material that's been generated? This is a little uh, a bit of a kind of a callback to, to Chapman and, and meaningness in some of our earlier podcasts. But I wonder if like STEM educated people know the depth of some of this stuff with English lit. Like, I mean, Joyce is maybe the, the worst culprit, but there are at least a few journals that on a quarterly basis, write, you know, generate lit crit just on Joyce um, and have been doing it for the last hundred years or so. Um, So anytime you're going to try to advance a point, like it's paralyzing the amount of content that you have to engage with. Um, So uh, to make a long detour short, I was, I was raised sort of in the Gombrovician style, but I always felt uncomfortable. Like what, what the hell am I doing with my time? If I'm, if I'm not engaging with all the stuff that's been done. And I think, I think Gombrovich goes further, right? So he says, you're only allowed to write write about yourself. Then he adds in writing about yourself, however, write So that your person takes on weight, meaning and life so that it becomes your decisive argument. Don't write as a pseudoscientist, but as an artist. And that's exactly what uh, I have in mind when I go back to sort of my undergrad. Um, it, it, it was never explicitly said to us, but when you're writing your own feelings about a work, you're, uh, you're writing autobiography, right? Like if you were using the Dewey Decimal System or whatever and and trying to find a place to categorize your your little essay, it wouldn't belong in the Joyce section. You're not you're not contributing shit to that. Um, what you're doing is you're exploring and um, carving out your form, your identity, your personality. Um, when you engage in criticism of this nature, um, you are the immature artist finding your your groove. Criticism must be as tense and vibrant as that which it touches. Otherwise, it becomes gas escaping from a balloon, a sloppy butchering with a dull knife, decay, and anatomy a grave. Um, and that's something that's always been interesting. Is is it does feel almost binary with writing that some writing makes me want to write, and some writing makes me want to shut up. Um, and Gombrovich is is almost unique in the sense that he's the first writer to explore that phenomenon. Um, and so at once he makes me want to write and he also makes me want to think, uh, about why I'm writing. Um, we'll leave it there. Um, I, gosh, I hope, I hope this came through. Okay. I'm, I'll probably post it no matter what, since this was a productive, um, soliloquy and, uh, thanks for joining me. See you next time.